how can we improve animal-human relationships? How can we increase our sensitivity to the other animals who share this planet with us? Porva Joshi Pora is the PETA UK Senior Vice President and the author of Survival at Stake, How Our Treatment of Animals is Key to Human Existence, and other books. Survival at Stake is an essential advocate tool for anyone who cares about other species and the fate of our own existence. Purva Joshipura, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you, Mia. Thanks for having me. So we were here to discuss your latest book, Survival at Stake. But before we dive into that, I believe you selected a passage to share with our listeners. Yes, I would love to. Scientists tell us bumblebees can learn by observing other bees, recognize human faces, and do basic math. Scientists now tell us animals can be cleverer than us, too. Dr. Arthur Sanitos, an anthropologist with the University of Adelaide School of Medical Sciences, has remarked, For millennia, all kinds of authorities, from religion to eminent scholars, have been repeating the same idea ad nauseum that humans are exceptional by virtue that they are the smartest in the animal kingdom. However, science tells us that animals can have cognitive faculties that are superior to human beings. When we consider that different species of animals require different abilities to thrive in their natural environments, this makes sense. A gibbon does not need to know how to file taxes, but she must be able to recognize which branches are the strongest at a glance. Gibbons travel up to 15 meters with each swing and move faster than 55 kilometers an hour across the jungle canopy. What if intelligence tests were based on this or some of the other countless other impressive traits animals have that we don't? They are typically not only because humans create these tests with just human qualities in mind. Dolphins and other toothed whales use echolation for navigating the ocean and finding food. Elephants appear to communicate over miles through foot stomping. Tigers and many other species leave complex messages through olfactory markings. Pigeons use Earth's magnetic field to find their way over vast distances. The list goes on. Humans cannot naturally do any of these or many other things animals can do. We can only attempt to understand the full breadth of how animals make use of the information they gather through the unique ways they perceive the world. Meta Hennenberg, professor of anthropological and comparative anatomy at University of Adelaide says, the fact that they, that is animals, may not understand us while we do not understand them does not mean our intelligences are at different levels They are just of different kinds. When a foreigner tries to communicate with us using an imperfect, broken version of our language, our impression is that they are not very intelligent. But the reality is quite different. Indeed. And so many ways, non-human animals, they have a living language where we have a written language. And I think we have lost that over time, but some of us have held on to, particularly in indigenous cultures. Yes, we only have our five senses. And so... The way we perceive the world is limited. We may not even have the ability, in a way, to understand animals fully in terms of how they perceive the world, how they communicate, what they're capable of doing. And so it's very important when we observe animals that we are not looking at them only through the filter of what it is to be human, but to see them with open eyes so that we can really appreciate all that they can do and the unique ways in which they perceive the world. I was recently having a conversation with the Lakota radio host, Tiakasin Ghost Horse, and you see it throughout different indigenous cultures. 
but he speaks of animals being like our ancestors because they came before us. And supposedly if we are higher on the evolutionary scale, but maybe if you think about it another way, we are the children. That is so interesting because in Survival at Stake, I actually talk about how animals are our ancestors. You know, we all came from a fish-like creature. Yes, that may have been millions of years ago, but nevertheless, all of us vertebrate species came from this common ancestor. And so if we look at ourselves and, you know, our bone structure and compare it to other animals, we'll see a lot of similarities. And it's no wonder then that we have a a lot of very important similarities with animals. Yes, we may be different in a lot of ways, but we're the same as them in all of the ways that really matter, especially our desire to live and our desire to live free from pain and suffering. So yeah, that's a very interesting point. And indeed, since we are so close to them in many ways, exactly why we shouldn't eat them, wear them, you know, do testing on them or use them for entertainment. And But before, like, before we go further into this conversation, You've been working as an activist for animal protection for the last 25 years. Tell us about what started you on this journey. Oh, I don't know if I can pinpoint any one thing, but there have been many things in my life that I think started me on this journey. I grew up in Virginia in the United States, and I faced a lot of racism in school and bullying. And that experience put me on the path of recognizing what's wrong with other isms, not just racism, you know, sexism, unfortunately, all women have experienced some form of sexism in their life at some point, and also speciesism. All of these types of isms have the common theme of othering somebody else, somebody who's not like you. And a lot of the justifications that we use historically for racism or sexism or even speciesism is the same. For instance, that these beliefs or notions that they're not as smart as us or they don't feel as much. And we increasingly thankfully recognize that's flawed reasoning when it comes to racism and sexism and speciesism. So I think that experience in school set me on the path. But I think what really set things in stone is when I first started working at PETA, I got the opportunity to go to a slaughterhouse with members of the Indian leather industry. So back then, PETA was exposed what happens to animals in India for leather leather from India gets exported all around the world and so on. And so what happens to animals there is significant for consumers in other countries. And Cepeda had exposed that the animals there were being crammed onto vehicles in such high numbers that their bones are breaking, that their throats were slit in front of each other. And so when I went to the slaughterhouse, it was such a chaotic scene. The butchers were pushing and prodding all of these cows and buffaloes onto the slaughter floor. And while that was happening, there was a calf who was cast to the ground. And as that happened, his eyes locked with mine. And, you know, it was really that moment. I felt so guilty. I couldn't save that calf's life in that moment. And I thought that this calf thinks... I'm one of them. I'm one of the abusers who wants to see his life ended. And so I made a mental promise to that calf that I couldn't save his life, but I'm going to spend mine trying to save as many animals as I can. 
It's a big task, of course, and PETA has made a lot of progress testing on animals for cosmetics. I mean, it's harder to change people. Individually, people are making that move in terms of their dietary habits, but it is hard and slow, but you've made immense progress. Speaking of your first book at, at Slaughterhouses, it's an interesting story because a lot of interesting personal stories there. And in for a moment of taste, what uh, you eat impacts animals. You discuss your parents, your grandmother, and I believe you met your husband, Sum, in a slaughterhouse? Yes, I did. I did. He was hired by the Indian leather industry, in fact, to film because, again, this goes back to the campaign where PETA was highlighting the problems of how leather is produced in India and getting international retailers, dozens of them, to pledge that they will not be buying leather from India. Of course, PETA is continuing those efforts and helping these retailers understand it's not just India, that's a problem. There's really no humane way to uh, rip the skin off of an animal's body. But at the time, India was a focus because they had just done an investigation. And so the leather industry there was trying to run a PR exercise to show falsely that things are not so bad and that sort of thing. And they hired so to film some of the activities they were doing in slaughterhouses. And I was invited to, to go along. And what they would do is they would clean up the slaughterhouse for that moment to try to show that everything is okay. And of course, it was impossible to really clean it up. And so got to see firsthand the same way I was doing what actually happens to these animals, how they are torn away from their families and brought to these slaughterhouses on trucks and arrive, many of them dead or with broken bones or broken horns or gouged out eyes and broken spines, terrible state. And then for the ones who survive, they are handled with such brutality. They're hit and beat and kicked into the slaughter floor and then have their throats split in front of their family members or friends and companions waiting next in line. And so he immediately off the back of that decided that he cannot eat animals anymore. He cannot wear animals anymore. And so, yes, when people ask me how we met, I say, well, we met at a slaughterhouse and it provides an opportunity to tell people this story of what happens to these animals. To this day, that is what happens to these animals for leather that is exported around the world. And that not to even mention the ecological effects of the water, the pollution that's added to the water, or as you say, those workers, it's just like war. You know, we're traumatized by war. Soldiers are traumatized. And what it does to us when our whole society is built upon this violence that's hidden for most of us, but it's there. It must affect us on some level. Honestly, I consider it a form of racism that more than 60% of the world's leather was produced in developing nations because leather tanning is such an environmentally damaging process that Western countries were closing down their tanning businesses and shifting to India, Bangladesh, and, and places like that, where environmental controls are more lax, where labor laws are not always enforced. So India, Bangladesh, these types of countries are forced to do the West dirty work. In Bangladesh, there was a World Health Organization report that showed that in their tanning region, people there die. I think it's 90% of workers there die by the age of 50. There's children who can be easily found at tanning sites in both of these countries. 
the Ganges, which is a holy river in India, has become incredibly polluted because of the leather pollution. Farmland in India has become not usable because of leather tannery pollution, putting tens of thousands of farmers out of work. And so, you know, sometimes people say, well, they need jobs. Yes. Nobody's saying that we shouldn't make shoes in India and that sort of thing. Let's just make it from an environmentally friendly material. For instance, nowadays there's leather being made from plants that grow in abundance in India. Pineapples, bananas, coconuts, apples, grapes, and they don't require these heavy chemicals to be turned into leather. And that's because animal leather is treated. The skin doesn't simply rot off our feet and decompose. And so that's the difference. And yes, it's buying a leather bag in France or the UK or wherever a person may be. It, it really is not such a stretch to say that can be a death sentence for somebody in India. Yes. And speaking of our own survival being bound up with animal welfare, the way we see our treatment of animals has come back to bite us is COVID-19. But there are, of course, a lot of instances, mad cow disease, monkey pox, and now another chronic wasting disease, zombie deer diseases erupted in uh, Yellowstone Park that could jump the species barrier. Yes. I mean, so I wrote Survival at Stake for this very reason, because I've been working in animal rights for nearly the past 25 years. And throughout that time, there's been one common question that is asked, which is, well, shouldn't we deal with human issues first? But animal rights is human rights. Animal rights is environmentalism. These things are not distinct. And that's the point I was really trying to make in my book. I was inspired to write it because of the COVID-19 crisis, but also because some of the key crises affecting us today have also affected me. COVID-19 was one of them. I got sick with it early on in the pandemic. Then in my book, I also talk about HIV and how the first cases of HIV, scientists believe, have come from humans hunting primate. That's how it jumped the species barrier. Climate catastrophe. I was in Mumbai, India, when they were hit with the deadliest floods that they had ever seen. And I think that increasingly all of us are being faced with the effects of these key crises. And so the book talks about Things like what our treatment of animals has to do with pandemics and epidemics. You mentioned COVID-19 or those things like bird and swine flu, the spread from factory farming. I talk about antibiotic resistance. You know, we use more antibiotics in animals used for food today than we do in human beings. And that is furthering or advancing the antibiotic resistance crisis plaguing us already today where drugs that humans need ultimately fail to work when we need them because of their overuse in animal. I talk about pollution, for example, leather tannery pollution and so on. And I talk about other public health crises and also the fact that psychologists and criminologists tell us that people who are cruel to animals are often just getting started, that they often move on to being cruel to human beings. And so the whole point of the book is really to help people make that connection between animal rights and all of the other social justice issues that are important today. Yes, indeed. And we might see fewer conflicts around the world if we had built in right into our education models more of a sense of 
compassion and understanding that we're all animals, as you say. As you think about alternatives to animal testing, a lot of us have valid reservations when it comes to the rapid adoption of AI and what it will mean for the future of humanity. But it does, on the other hand, also offer real opportunities to the possibility of unlocking the secrets of animal communication or engendering interspecies dialogue. And last year, PETA came out with the PETA's version of the creation story and AI-generated interpretation of the book of Genesis, which is animal-friendly. Yes, that's right. And I do think with AI, it is our societal responsibility to be aware of how it can be used to harm animals. For instance, there's the worry that the same types of ways that AI might help, for instance, protect against poachers. That same technology can also be used to find the animals to poach or to damage, not only protect wildlife. So there's that concern. There's a concern about factory farming and how already animals are fully disregarded in that process and AI could even further automate that process to where there's no consideration of the animals at all, even worse than what goes on today. At the same time, AI can be, already is starting to be used for doing better than what we're able to do in terms of determining how well a drug might behave or how a chemical might react. Uh, by looking at all of the data together, that exists and drawing a conclusion better than a human being can do. So there's ways that AI are already being put to use in terms of reducing how animals are used in the laboratory setting. And as you say, AI, we, we don't even know, we're just getting started with it, can possibly do things. There's a lot of research right now about deciphering what animals are saying. The question is, are we going to listen to those animals? I like to think about if the non-human animals held at a COP conference and what they would be saying about us. Can you believe they're still talking about this and not doing it? And you spoke at the beginning about bees, and I've always been intrigued by them. They have such short lifespans, but are incredibly intelligent. I would love to know how they navigate. Yes, short lifespan, tiny little animals with tiny little brains, but Something I talk about in my book is that now we know with computer chips and so on, that size doesn't necessarily determine capacity. And that if we just look at insects, they're doing such amazing things. They're navigating flight, for instance, making decisions if they see a threat on how to move away. They're going from flower to flower, knowing which one has pollen and they're communicating with each other. I mean, they're doing so many amazing things if we're simply willing to look. And they do such a service to humans. Pollination is one thing, but so many other things like aerating the soil or making sure that dead animals are not simply left to decay, cause disease and all sorts of work is done by insects. And so I dedicate an entire chapter in my book, Survival at Stake, to insects because they're inherently valuable, not just because of what they do for human beings or for the planet. And they're very fascinating, but also because of their contribution to making this planet and therefore us healthy. And of course, you spoke of speciesism and you in your own field have encountered a sexism that you kind of touched on. It's very difficult it, when you first start out, difficult being a woman in your field. Well, when I think of sexism in relation to where I've faced it in the workplace, I think the first thing that comes to mind is our efforts against 
a form of bull racing, which happens in India. It's called Jalikatu. It's going on right now. It happens during certain time of the year. And it's very much like running of the bulls that happens in Pamplona, where a bunch of men get together to chase a bull. The bull gets so terrified that he runs into things, he breaks his bones, sometimes the bull dies, he runs top speed into some of these participants and kills many of them too. And, you know, the whole idea is to show how, how tough you are. And when we started campaigning against uh, this spectacle, it wasn't a surprise considering how these men were willing to treat someone who's more vulnerable to them and bully this bull. That same attitude was then transferred over into how they were reacting to us and especially me because I was leading that campaign. And so their comments were sexist, so incredibly disrespectful, and they tried the same bullying approach where we started receiving death threats at our office. It was exactly what they do to bulls, but just transferred over. And so it, it just brings us back to the point of why it is so important to teach people and to teach young people the importance of being kind to everyone, animals included. Because if you teach them that, I think the other lessons start to automatically transfer over. Hi, Porva. It's an honor to meet with you today. Um, Hi, Courtney. Lovely to meet you too. I read your book, Survival at Stake, and I am just a huge fan. So as a woman in your field, it can be intimidating, even as a young woman myself who wants to do activist work. What would you want the younger generations of women to know? I work in a place where it, it just happens to be. It's not that we chose to do it this way. But at PETA, I think the majority of us are women. And so we have a really supportive network. And that's what I would suggest is to find other fellow women like you who believe in the same thing. Join hands, join together, become a stronger force. Each one of us individually is, is powerful. But that might be a way of sharing ideas, brainstorming, and also having that supportive network. Because we do such difficult work and like other animal advocates also do. I've been in, as I mentioned before, slaughterhouses and in these very frightening places where animals are abused. And it's been so helpful to come back to this supportive network of other strong women who are also working hard to help animals. So I would say that's what's helped me. And I would recommend for others if they can build upon something like that. That's so inspiring. Given your awareness of environmental and social impact of animal cruelty, have you yourself made any changes or adopted practices to align with your commitment to animal welfare? Definitely. I mean, when I was growing up, I ate meat, wore leather, went to the circus, went to the zoo, bought animal tested products, all while thinking that I loved animals. And I just never made that connection until a friend of mine challenged me for ordering a chicken burger one day. And I asked her about it later, like, why did you make that comment? And she said, you know, that she's been reading and learning about animal rights. And so we went vegetarian together and then we went vegan together. And now she works at PETA as well. And it took her comment really to help me 
start thinking about how arbitrary we label animals, say, as friends or as food. And me having grown up in the U.S., I could see that labeling was different to how my parents considered these animals. I'll give you an example. So my parents came from a culture where cows are considered sacred, but they're eaten in the United States. Similarly, dogs are considered friends in the U.S., but they're eaten in some parts of India. And so just being able to see that, I could see that these are not truths. A cow is not inherently food or a dog is not inherently a friend. And when you can see that different people label these animals differently, then you can understand that you can decide that you're going to reject these arbitrary labels and extend respect to all of these animals, no matter the species. And so it was that kind of thinking that got me to understand that eating meat, wearing leather, these things are simply a choice. It's not a way that we have to be. It's not an inherent or even a natural way of being. Yeah, I'm glad that you touched upon the subject of bringing in these religious and cultural perspectives that have influenced your way of life. What's your relationship with these religions today? So I grew up with a lot of access to a lot of different religions. My parents were Hindu, but I went to school with people who are predominantly Christian. We'd go to India and my uncle was Muslim. And I think I've had an opportunity to learn about these different faiths. And what's amazing is that the commonality of all of them is that we should live a more compassionate life. None of them require me eating. Even if they allow it, they don't require it. In so many different religions, there's even instructions, for example, in Islam or in Judaism, on how to treat animals more kindly, which tells us that animals are considered important. Their feelings are considered to have mattered. And then you have Jains, for instance, who consider all life sacred, no matter how tiny or large. And so I think what I take from all of these religions is that we're all hopefully striving to do better and being kinder. And one of the easiest ways of being kind to ourselves also is by being kind to animals. Hello everyone, my name is Alistair. I'm a senior at the University of Washington, Seattle, majoring in environmental and gender studies. And what I am most passionate about is the vitality of nature in spite of human affect. A great example of this is found in my own local community. There's this pond near where I live that is known for its beautiful swans. They're mute swans, which means they don't leave their habitat during the winter months like other species of birds, but rather are seen out in the water, even in the dead of winter. Their resilience is significant to me because just adjacent to this pond is a major highway a well-worn path of broken concrete covered in tire marks, trash, and suffocated by the smell of fresh exhaust. It's humbling to me that this small ecosystem can thrive in spite of the desolating presence of humans not far away. I think this is a small example of the profound endurance of nature, and that although we as humans consider our time on this earth as a triumph of dominating our environment, but what the wisdom of the swans can inspire is in fact that no matter how bitter and determined our affect on the planet may seem, Nature will endure. My name is Courtney Galeran. As a vegan who believes in the sentimental consciousness towards the feelings and life of all animals, and someone who studies environmental literature at the University of California, Los Angeles, talking with Purva has touched and inspired me greatly. As Joshi Purva discusses, we're all animals on this planet, and non-human animals can experience pain, love, and happiness like us. 
They too are intelligent, strong, industrious beings who are capable of evolutionary growth and adaptation. But there's another reason to consider an animal's well-being. From the elephant to the smallest bee, their existence is key to our own. Only after becoming involved in a community, Effective Altruism at UCLA, did I realize the impact of my dietary choices and how there's a huge overlap between animal rights and the environment. From global warming to the destruction of our ecosystems, every choice we make affects the whole planet. If we open our consciousness to their suffering, can we realize that our own existence is at stake? As Porva Joshipur explains, the shared language and poetic sensibilities of all animals cannot be separated from the destiny of all nature. Porva Joshipur's sensitivity and work is proof that we can all be caregivers for not only animals, but ourselves. As someone who feels the pain of these animals, it's incredibly empowering and comforting to know that I'm not the only one in the fight to end animal injustice. Now, back to the interview. And part of putting a true costing on things so that the meat isn't so expensive if you really charge the cost of also industrial agriculture, it would be more expensive if it wasn't subsidized the way. So we have uh, a follow-on to uh, movements towards regenerative agriculture and things that put us more in balance with the planet. 100%. And when we're talking about cost, we have to also think about not just the cost of a carton of eggs, but the cost to the planet, to climate change, to the climate catastrophe, to our own health. And we start adding up the cost of going to the doctor because we've had a heart attack we can start seeing the real cost is certainly not worth buying that carton of eggs in the first place. And what I've so admired over the years from PETA is the, the strength of your messaging, the psychology of it, the, how you've been able to put across for the general public to really understand animal sentience and their feelings and what it would be like to be a cow that's perpetually pregnant. It's just inhuman. Totally. One of the things I describe in my book is about animal experimentation. However, what I focus on is the mere act of putting the monkey in a cage. Not even about the poisoning, not even about the surgeries and all of the other things that also happen to that animal, but just taking the monkey out of the forest, putting that monkey in a cage and depriving that animal of their family and everything that is naturally important to them, just how much that act causes them to suffer. And it's not even always about the egregious cruelty, but every single thing that we do to animals for food, clothing, for experimentation, entertainment from birth to death is a horror. And it's very important for us to always, when we're looking at animals, to think about, would we like for that to happen to us? You know, people sometimes ask me, what do I consider good animal welfare? And it's really as simple as that. Ask yourself, would you want to be in that animal's place? Would you want to be living a life hauling a carriage full of tourists, for instance? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't be doing that to that animal either. And tell us about some of those encounters that you've had with non-human animals that are just, they bypass language and have this deeper communication that you've had. One of the animals who comes to mind is a, a turkey called Alice. She lived at the Poplar Hill Animal Sanctuary, which is just outside of Washington, D.C., and I went there many years ago when I had really just first started out with PETA as a staff member, and a uh, few of us got to go there. And when I first got to the sanctuary, it was amazing. Alice 
walked right up to us and she was so curious about, I had, for instance, a bag on my shoulder with like little mirrors on it. And she wanted to see that bag. So I knelt down to show her. And I had no idea until that point that if you pet a turkey and they purr like cats, this is an animal who was social, who was curious who wanted to know more about her surroundings and the world in which she's living in, who wanted to show love. And this is not the way that we normally get to engage with turkeys. Usually they're dead in a package. They're either in a crate or a cage. They're not able to express their natural behavior. They're not able to be who they are. But if left naturally, they are amazing mothers, protective, love to play. They're so comparable to the dogs and cats who we call our friends, who we consider family members in our homes. So that was a very useful experience for me and anybody else who has the opportunity to visit an animal sanctuary where these rescued animals live. I would invite them to do that because you really do see them in a different light. And once you see them in that light, there's no turning back. Indeed. And they have great sense of athleticism beyond anything that you would call these Olympic athletes if they were humans. Totally. They can do all sorts of things that humans cannot do, depending on the species and such amazing things and so many things that we haven't even learned yet. Yes. And for a moment of taste, which you dedicated, of course, to your grandmother. I'm just thinking about who are some of those early teachers that might have set you on a path of embracing the natural world and the connection with animals? My grandmother was definitely one of them. She was the kind of person who taught us not to crush bugs, that if we saw an insect in the house, she would gently put them outside. She loved animals, was very enthusiastic about them. And that passed on to my father. Uh, he would always watch nature documentaries and this kind of thing. And my parents grew up vegetarian, but it was only because they moved to the United States, which was at that time a more meat-eating society, that they lost track of that connection with the natural world, so to speak, and which has been regained now. So my grandmother was definitely one of them. As you think about the future and education and how we are to arrive at a more equitable and compassionate world for all animals, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I would go right back to that very simple thing of treat animals the way that you would like to be treated. And I know that humane education is becoming a more welcome subject or way of teaching in schools. And I definitely think we need more of that, where it's not you go to school and learn about maths and science and history and so on, but learn about those subjects within the realm of real life issues and real life problems, such as animal welfare or climate catastrophe. So I think we need to equip young people with the challenges of the world that they're entering into and the way that the world is set to be. Absolutely. We have to remember that we're not separate from nature, but a part of nature. All of life is interdependent and being human is essentially a collaborative process of relationships with others, including animals, nature and our environment. We need to increase our perception and engage with a more sensitive awareness of other animals that share this planet with us. So thank you, Purvajashi Pura, for touching our empathic imaginations, for bringing home to us the ways in which our survival is at stake 
and that by protecting non-human animals and biodiversity, we're really being kind to ourselves. And for all you and PETA do to promote the ethical treatment of animals, to educate and inspire us to respect and live in harmony with animal kind. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks for having me. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Courtney Guiran with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Sam Myers, Courtney Guiran, and Alistair Knight. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.